According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs 14. Returning where we left off a week ago in Proverbs 14, verses 28 and following. Give this a moment to warm up and decide if it's going to work or not. Mishle Shlomo, Proverbs of Solomon. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of the Word of God this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon His faithfulness to bless our time. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do call upon Your faithfulness this morning once again to hedge us about and protect us. Pray for Doug as he's looking at what he's looking at. Father, uh, just thank you for being faithful. Father, bless our time in your word this morning. Open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, last week we were talking about some demographics and population studies and uh, what happens if, you're, uh, if your nation is shrinking. What happens if, and not just a nation either, your state, your local community, your church, your family, um, in a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. And so if, uh, if the population is dwindling, you ask yourself, why? Why is it dwindling? What is the uh, cause of the dwindle? <laughs> and is it going to continue to dwindle? Is it going to dwindle to the point of disappearance? What are we doing? And uh, if, uh, if we're adding people, uh, why are we adding people? For right reasons? For wrong reasons? If we're adding people, uh, do we ever grow too big? And, and what happens then? And, uh, and aspects there. So it is interesting, and here, of course, is a principle of wisdom whereby the increase is a good thing and a decrease is not a good thing. Well, why is that? Okay? And so uh, on a practical application in terms of wisdom literature, why is this that a multitude of people is a king's glory? And this is what wisdom identifies. And so this is point 18. Wisdom identifies an increasing population as a blessing and decreasing population as ruin. And this is not the only text to do such a thing. Remember in Exodus 1.12, the Egyptians were very nervous because the Jewish population kept increasing. Those Jewish women were having more babies. And uh, the Jewish population was increasing as a ratio of the overall population. And uh, that led the Egyptians to a very scary place because uh, you know the mindset of the pagan mindset in the ancient world and the modern world, by the way, still has a, a fear factor when it comes to us versus them, when it comes to uh, other people coming to our land, and uh, why are they coming here? And is that something to be nervous about? Is it something to be happy about? Is that something to uh, to celebrate? And so, even to this day, we got immigration debates and arguments and fights, and uh, and aspects there. So uh, Exodus one twelve is a good illustration of that. Deuteronomy one eleven is another. First Kings four twenty is another. So an increasing population is a blessing, a declining population is a ruin. 
And uh, you have to ask yourself, uh, do we have, is, is our population sufficient? Because we, I mean, we've got to feed everybody, we've got to protect everybody, we've got, there's things that have to be done by a nation, by a people group. Uh, and if they can't do that anymore, well then what happens? Say, if you can't defend your border, what happens? If you can't protect your people, what happens? If you can't care for your elderly, what happens? If you stop having babies, what happens? Say, you know, because you, you can stop having babies, but you can't stop aging, <laughs> right? And so that's, that's going to happen. The people who do already exist are going to keep getting older. And so if you don't have new people existing, birthed, coming in, then, uh, then you got a problem. And this is true nationally, locally, in, in, a, in a family. You know, we discuss this when it comes to uh, elder care and, and with children and grandchildren that can take care of it. Well, what if I don't have children or grandchildren? Who's going who's gonna to drive me to appointments? Who's going to do these things? See? And so it gets very practical and on, a, on a household basis. Local churches have to decide. Local churches have to decide if they dwindle, 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 and you're down now to the last five people. You know, you got a pastor and four deacons. What do you do? And uh, so, this is uh, this is what we have now. In 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 studying this, though, we have to always have the caveat that numerical superiority is not a substitute for fearing God. And so, while we recognize it as a principle that it is a blessing to increase, we don't confuse the uh, the thing and just assume that bigger numbers are always better. And that if we're increasing, God's blessing us. And if we're decreasing, God's not blessing us. Okay, So don't confuse the general principle with exceptions to the rule and seasons when God may deliberately be bringing you down. God might deliberately be shrinking your army down to Gideon numbers and things of that nature. See, So you can't always assume that more is always better and less is always worse. You can't always assume that if he's adding members... That if we have more members in 2018 than we had in 2017, that that means Austin Bible Church is thriving. Okay, it's not always an absolute issue there. And so those are the principles we saw in Joshua 24, Psalm 33, Zechariah 4, and and the biggest one of all is First Chronicles 21, when David is moved to number the armies of Israel, and uh, because he was numbering them for prideful reasons, and uh, he got disciplined for it there. All right. So if we're solid on that, then uh, then we're ready to proceed. Let's just take one final look at First Chronicles twenty-one, just to get back up to what we were looking at. I know there were a few things we ran out of time. First Chronicles twenty-one. There's also larger issues here that we can look at as well. So 1 Chronicles 21, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And that's, uh, that's a verse that ought to be uh, studied and developed and, and we ought to be uh, uh, fearful you know, with a, a true fear of the Lord that if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, um, this is, what we, uh, this is our, our tactic in the angelic conflict, what we learned Sunday night with respect to put, keeping our armor on. In, uh, in that. So Satan can uh, whisper things, he can give ideas, he can, he can kind of pave the way. He can't force you to do anything against your will, all right? So when it says he moved him, that means he influenced him, he seduced him, he, he tempted him, he, 
He strongly urged him, whatever the case may be, however you want to translate the Hebrew on this. But understand, no, believe, no born-again believer in Jesus Christ, particularly a church-age believer in Jesus Christ, that's baptized in union with Christ. But even in the Old Testament, a born-again believer cannot have, uh, be possessed, cannot be forced to do something against his will. Okay? Now if you, uh, you can get involved in demonism, and you can uh, get drunk off your, your mind. You can be stoned out of your gourd. You can be so influenced and in your, you can be out of your mind and then listen to those voices, listen to those influences. Uh, a believer, a born-again believer can be in carnality, can be listening to those voices. Okay? Just don't do it. <laughs> That's the point. But as far as being possessed, being controlled, doing things against your will... Uh, I'm, I'm firmly in the camp that says no, no born-again believer can do that because we are permanently indwelled with the Holy Spirit even when we're carnal. We still have the indwelling even when we lose the filling. And that uh, you're going to learn about in May when, when Bill Kelly teaches us about the filling of the Holy Spirit. So Satan moved David to number Israel. And so David said to, jo, to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. And the actual census is not in itself a bad thing. God Himself took two censuses. That's why we have the book of Numbers, right? God took a census at the Exodus and He took a census a generation later and He recorded that in the Scriptures. A census is not sinful, but clearly the attitude here is sinful because uh, David is listening to the voice of Satan for prideful reasons. And uh, Joab says, may the Lord add to His people a hundred times as many as they are. In other words, it doesn't matter. David, why are you doing this? The number is irrelevant, and you know that. But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why does my lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? And the answer there is marvelous. Joab is, is not even a, a spiritual hero. If, if he's saved at all, he's carnal, and he may not even be saved. I think he's a, he's a terrible snare in, uh, in this. But at least on this question, he's got the right approach. Okay? And so uh, are they not all my Lord's servants? You know, it's, that's a good answer. You know, if somebody says, how many members does Austin Bible Church have? I say all of them, right? It's, uh, they're all members. Whatever the number is, the number of members, you know, whatever the case. I have 7 billion members. It's not all of them, you know, uh, everybody that's population of the world, but they don't all attend very regularly. We couldn't seat them all anyway. Um, anyway, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Now, this is also interesting. You know, you're under authority, and the authority over you tells you to do something you think is not biblical. What do you do? Okay, if because uh, Joab's under authority, do you obey the king? Or do you defy the king? If you think it's it's unbiblical, uh, the apostles said, "Hey, we've got to obey God rather than men." And they said, "You know, choose. You know, choose." whether it's right or wrong, but we're going to obey God rather than man. Joab could have done that and said, sorry David, go number them yourself. I'm going to defy you on this because uh, it's against the will of God. You're listening to the voice of Satan. Um, That's not what Joab did. Joab obeyed and went out and did it. So now who gets judged? Does Joab get judged or does uh, David get judged? David gets judged. And so um, this happens here. So Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David and all Israel were, and then here's the number. And, and numbers are the biggest problem in manuscripts, in Hebrew manuscripts. 
They, they don't always get transcribed correctly. They don't always get um, dealt with appropriately. But according to one idea, 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. Numbers are a problem, and Titus Kennedy is fixing these numbers, and I like what Titus is doing. When he gets his book written, uh, we will all get copies, and, uh, and I hope to get a free copy since I'm helping. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not helping that. I'm proofreading some drafts, and I'm, I'm, I'm chatting back and forth with him on, on email. I'm not, I'm not helping him write his book. That's not fair to say. All right. Anyway, God was displeased. Now notice, he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. So Joab obeyed, but he cheated. He obeyed and he left Benjamin out. You know, and I'm wondering, uh, that's curious to me. Okay, so God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. And uh, here's the sin, here's the confession, and the Lord's going to give uh, David a choice of punishments. you got door number one, door number two, or door number three here. It's almost like a game show. And, uh, and David has to pick his divine discipline related to this. So, but the point being, you know, the uh, uh, choose, uh, choose your punishment here. And uh, there's a principle that's at work. Verse 17, David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Lord my God, let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. And so David admits that his motivation was the issue and why it was that his, his act was wrong. All right, well, there's the, there's the, uh, the details on that. Um, Back to Proverbs then. So we're clear, the census itself is not the sin, it's the attitude behind the census, all right? We, we track our members and we have a membership list, but that's not because we're prideful about it or we're trying to build some kind of a, an empire or anything of the sort. We're just accountable before God and man and we have to have a membership list, all right? Because uh, the members are the church, the, not the building. The members are the church. The members own the building and as far as that goes. And so we have uh, a state requirement as a corporation to have a membership list. The members are the owners. All right. So that's verse 28. We also have verse 29, which we've covered earlier about slow to anger. We covered that in an earlier verse. We're ready now for verse 30. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. So here we've got a principle, a principle whereby we link our spiritual life with our physical life. We understand the capacity of our soul has effects with our physical health. Again, a tranquil heart is life to the body. A tranquil heart. How do you get a tranquil heart? How do you have a relaxed mental attitude when chaos is raging all around you? How do you, uh, how do you have spiritual peace when uh, <laughs> everything is, is crashing down on you like a ton of bricks? And notice though, it's life to the body. 
but passion is rottenness to the bones. And and there's other ways we can render passion as a translation. Passion is not always a bad thing, but it's used in the poetry here as the opposite of a tranquil life. And so we stop and ask ourselves, how would I characterize my Christian walk? How would I characterize my soul? How would I characterize uh, you know, my, my spiritual walk right now, my spiritual life? Would I say that I'm tranquil or would I say that I'm frenzied? Would I say that I'm tranquil or would I say that I'm, I don't like the word passion, but we'll use it because it's there. But the idea of tranquil being calm, stable, quiet, that's tranquil, right? Versus loud, chaotic, frenzied, okay? And we're talking, we're not talking personalities, right? So don't, I don't want to offend anyone, (laughs) Because there are people that have very quiet personalities. And there are people that have very boisterous personalities. And there are styles of conversation. And sometimes the conversation style is a reflection of the personality. So let's get past all that. (laughs) We're talking about um, your soul. We're talking about your spiritual walk. And are you at peace right now with the Lord? Are you at peace, stable in His Word? And, and this is what we talk about too when we talk about not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We talk about believers that have stability. Believers that are not just immediately going into a panic palace when something happens. And Paul says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. As if from me or a spirit or a letter, as if from us that says the day of the Lord has come. And if you get an email that we're changing over our email uh, services, all right, and uh, so we're we're leaving. Uh, used to have a, a company that we paid money to called Simple List, and they they managed all our email distribution lists. And now we've got a, a better uh, provision for that. And it could take a day or two uh, to to do the complete changeover and the complete um, uh, transfer, and that's fine. But whenever that's done, if you get an email from Pastor Bob that says. Um, you know, we missed the rapture, or there is no rapture, or we're in the great tribulation, and and here's the Antichrist, you know, Donald Trump is the Antichrist. Um, if you get an email like that, uh, you guys know better, okay? You guys aren't going to be all weird, weirded out and panicking, okay? But the Thessalonians, they freaked out, because uh, they get this letter from Paul saying, uh, you know, forget what I told you when I was with you, I was wrong, here's the Here's the truth, and the day of the Lord has come, and you're in the tribulation. There is no rapture. Um, and they panicked. They, they freaked out. See, that's why we have Second Thessalonians in our Bibles. Now, here's the point. Spiritual well-being has physical health benefits. Spiritual well-being has physical health benefits. Now, if you want to put some caveats in there, you can. You can, you can put often, spiritual well-being often has, typically has, frequently has, normally has. Remember, with wisdom literature, we're talking about how things normally go. The normal course of things. And uh, this is like with, with increasing population. Increasing population is normally a blessing, normally a good thing. Decreasing population is normally not a good thing. And and so we have general rules of thumb that are presented in wisdom. Are there exceptions? Of course. That's why we don't view it robotically. We don't view it absolutely. We don't view it as a a 
That's why we don't take this and pervert it into prosperity theology. We don't pervert this general principle into an absolute promise or an absolute mandate. In other words, we don't assign every sickness to spiritual rebellion. If somebody gets cancer, if somebody has a heart attack and dies, if somebody, you know, we don't, we don't just assume, oh, look at you, you have cancer, what's wrong with your spiritual walk? Because spiritual well-being has physical health benefits, we don't take a general principle and then try to claim it as an absolute matter. Are we clear on that? Because this gets so perverted and it gets so abused. And, and I think when people start going down that track, it can be devastating. You know, well, what's wrong with me? I've been, I've been faithful. I love Jesus. I've been going to church. Why did I get cancer? Well, let me tell you, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And, and um, we, we have fallen bodies in a fallen world. So believers are not immune to any disease that's out there. We can get any disease an unbeliever can get. Now in God's mercy and in the physical health benefits for a reflection of that spiritual well-being, let's face it, there's cancer and then there's cancer. And even, even in the same kinds of cancer, there are still degrees for how merciful our Lord is in mitigating the effects of that cancer, providing the stability, providing the relaxed mental attitude, providing the, the spiritual peace. Even when there's pain, there's still peace. Okay? And this is uh, where, I mean, I'll use my own mother as the example. I think, I think as, as, uh, as far as cancers go, I mean, she was marvelously relaxed and the dying grace was powerful. And the Catholic, I was Seton Hospital, so it was a Catholic chaplain that, that came in. To, when the doctor gave her the news that she was going to die, they, you know, they said sometime within the next 24 hours you're, you're not going to make it. And, and so the doctor told her that and then they sent this priest in to try to comfort her. <laughs> and she had more doctrine than the Catholic priest if he was even a believer, I don't know. But the, the, this is where, again, the spiritual well-being has a physical health benefit in that it doesn't cure the cancer, it doesn't, doesn't change the reality of what she's struggling with. But boy, it sure guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You sure have a stability when the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding. And, and it's fun when it surpasseth all understanding because then you get these people without any frame of reference and they can't understand why you're, why you're so at peace, why you're so calm. And this was the uh, story that of the um, there was an oncologist in, in Little Rock, Arkansas years ago that, that got saved. Jim Myers tells the story because he was this was years and years ago when Jim Myers was a pastor in, in Conway. But a Jewish man treating cancer patients, he was a doctor, a physician, and he's treating cancer patients and he's seeing them all die over 10 years, 20 years, however long. And he noticed over that whole course of time that of all the patients that he watched die of cancer, the ones that had the most serenity, the most peace, the most were the Christians. And the ones that had Bible teaching. And, and even and, and his fellow Jewish, Jewish people, Jewish patients, some of them were as terrified as any pagan. And he, and he wondered, well, why is that? What is it about the Bible, what, the Christian Bible, the, the New Testament, that gave Christians an edge over Jewish people in, in facing, facing the afterlife? And, uh, and that ultimately led to his 
faith in Jesus Christ. He became a born-again believer watching Christians die for years and years and years. He said there's something different there. So we have Proverbs 14.30 and it's a principle that we've seen previously backing up to chapter 4 in the parental wisdom portion with parents and we we want to ground our children in this. Proverbs 4, 20 through 22. My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight, keep them in the midst of your heart. And so when you're grounding children in the Word of God, it takes discipline, it takes consistency, they have to pay attention, they have to stick with it. They... um, they may have a tendency to drift, so you don't want them to take their eyes off the Word, let them not depart from your sight, keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. There is a physical health benefit to conducting your life according to the Word of God. See? And that shouldn't be a shock. (laughs) You know? If you're living according to biblical principles, how many uh, venereal diseases you're going to get, you know. If you're uh, if you're if you're if you're living right according to Scripture, you're not pursuing the things the world's doing with all the rampant uh, fornication and all the other consequences and all the the uh, the, the drug abuse and all the other uh, all the other stuff. And uh, you're not susceptible to uh, cirrhosis, for example. If you're not a if you're not a drunk. Other things, okay? So there is a benefit. This is why when, when we subscribe with Samaritan Ministries for medical cost sharing, you subscribe to the biblical lifestyle uh, uh, practices. And you say, we, uh, you know, we are a Christian family. We follow biblical mandates. And, and we, uh, we don't engage in unmarital, you know, premarital, extramarital, all the, the fornication sins. And we don't take drugs. And we... Uh, either don't take alcohol at all or we drink alcohol only in moderation, no drunkenness, as drunkenness is the sin. And you subscribe to all of that. And the reason why their costs are so low as opposed to you know, Aetna or Blue Cross or all the secular insurance companies because the healthy people are paying for the sinners in the, in the insurance companies. And if you've got a pool of people that are all following a biblical lifestyle the, uh, the costs are a lot lower for what they're treating. All right, and so we see the uh, the application of it here. They are life to those who find them, and health to all their body. Um, chapter fifteen, Proverbs fifteen. <laughs> all right, what was that? Oh, I thought I heard something. All right, Proverbs 15, verse 13. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. So there's benefits, okay? Spiritual benefits have physical consequences, have emotional consequences. Don't uh, don't conflate them. Spiritual is not the same as emotional. And so if you are spiritually adjusted, there will be physical health benefits, there will be emotional benefits, by virtue of spiritual um, health. Same chapter down to verse 30. 
Bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. And uh, do you think that good news is all secular information? Is that good news that comes in the newspaper? Good news you heard on the radio this morning? Good news on your Facebook feed? Or is it good news as we think of gospel, right? As we think of good news, as we think of truth from God, truth from the Lord, truth from heaven. And uh, what a blessing there. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. That's verse 31, right after verse 30 there. So Anyway, spiritual well-being has physical health benefits, including emotional benefits. Chapter 17 and verse 22. Uh, let's see a joyful heart is good medicine but a broken spirit dries up the bones a broken spirit dries up the bones so you know uh, someone that's cheerful all the time laughing all the time we're not talking in a phony emotional kind of way we're not talking trying to trying to gin this up emotionally the world though has their theories about this the world, even secular psychiatry, has their, their theories about this with psychosomatic illnesses and different things, the power of positive thinking, and they, the shrinks all try to convince you that if you think positive thoughts, then you're going to you know, improve. And that's just, uh, that's just a carnal imitation of what the Bible's talking about. But you need God's joy. You need the true joy from God working in your heart. This is the joyful heart, and it is good medicine. But a broken spirit dries up the bones. And so uh, you deal with it there. That's why if a test lingers so long, the test gets harder and harder and harder in, uh, in that because it is, um, you're, you're risking that broken spirit at that point. So physical health benefits. So if you think about, and we're talking, again, we're not talking personality, we're talking joyful in the sense of spiritually joyful. The brothers you know, the sisters you know, that are spiritually more joyful than anybody else you know, that's, that's not by accident. That's because they're living in the Word of God. That's because they have an intimate prayer life day by day, moment by moment. And uh, we got, we got some, some, some chipper folks around here. And, in, and even in the case, and I, I'm going to, she's not here this morning, so I can embarrass Fallon, right? But if you think about, she's in the Word, she's joyful, she's She's, uh, uh, I think, a marvelous illustration of what this verse is talking about. But she also has health issues, does she not? Okay? So stop and ask yourself, can you imagine how much worse they would be if she wasn't so cheerful? (laughs) You know? I mean, she brought this thing back from Africa, and you think, wow. And what she's been struggling with and what she's been overcoming. God's been faithful. God's been faithful. Can you imagine how much worse it would have been or it could be if she, if she wasn't in the Word and praying and looking at the Lord and, and staying as, as cheerful and delightful as she can? Okay? Anyway, and I think too, uh, other examples. How much worse would it be if I didn't know the Lord? So, um, so it's not, you can't read this verse and say, well, a joyful heart is good medicine, and say, if I'm just spiritually adjusted right, if, I'm, if I have enough doctrine, I'll never be sick ever again. Wrong. Okay? 
Or if I fear the Lord, I'll never, if I have enough faith, I'll never be sick ever again. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. But because you have the joy that you have, the physical health tests you do face are mitigated in in just a beautiful, beautiful way. I think that's a fair statement to make. All right, so that's 17.22. We also have 18.14. The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? The spirit of a man can endure his sickness. And as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? You know, and this too, you know, doctors talk about, well, they just give up. Well, they just say, okay, I'm done. Well, okay, I'm ready, or whatever the case. And when the will gives up, how, how long do they linger? Sometimes it's like that. You know, yesterday they announced that Barbara Bush, or no, two days ago, Barbara Bush, the announcement was made that she was going to stop all uh, of the aggressive treatment and, and uh, just receive the comfort provision, gone within 24 hours, right? And it's like when, when the will is gone, uh, then it's gone. But here it's described as on a spiritual basis, if the spirit is broken, what happens to your willpower? But if the spirit is, uh, is strong and you're looking to the Lord, you can endure all things through Christ who strengthens you. What a provision. So that's an effect there as well. Exodus 15, 26. Backing up now to Exodus. Exodus 15, 26. And here's... Um, They've come through the Red Sea and uh, they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water for the water was bitter. That's why they named it Marah. But Marah means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree, threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. So there he made for them a statute and a regulation and there he tested them. And he said... If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. And this is the Lord. But notice the diseases. And here's diseases being assigned as divine discipline for the uh, Egyptians, for unbelievers. For carnal believers that decide to live their life like an Egyptian, okay? And uh, there you go. And uh, so that's a principle. Spiritual well-being has physical health benefits. Spiritual idolatry has health consequences. God will use disease as a discipline, okay? That's true. God will use disease as a discipline, Does that mean every disease you get is God's discipline? Right, exactly. That's exactly right. So he does use disease as a discipline, but that does not mean that every disease is a discipline. So just don't fall for the the logical fallacies there. All right. Uh, 23, Exodus 23, verses 25 and 26.
Here's the uh, promise on the conquest. Verse 20 says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him. So the first order of business in conquering the land is obey God. <laughs> okay? It's not nothing military, nothing external, nothing about, you know, be courageous. It's obey God. He's going in front of you. Listen to him. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But you, but if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. My angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I will completely destroy them. This is the promise that the spies didn't believe when they looked at the giants and said, oh, we can't beat those guys. Well, they'd already been promised in Exodus 23, God's going to do all the fighting. Just walk behind Him and do what He says. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. They've got these totem poles that no, that's the, the location for their idolatry and don't want any part of that. But you shall serve the Lord your God and He will bless your bread and your water and I will remove sickness from your midst. So no famine, no drought, no uh, disease. Right? No epidemic. And these are the things that every culture has to worry about. Food, drink, disease. Do we have famine? Do we have drought? Do we have plague? Do we have disease? And God's going to take care of that if they obey. More than that too. He says there will be no miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. And so don't worry about famine, don't worry about drought, don't worry about pestilence. Also infant mortality rates. They're a whole lot better in Christian countries in, uh, when believers are walking according to the Word of God. Okay? And uh, uh, barren, the, 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 uh, so you got infant mortality on the one hand and then fertility, for the fertility rate on the other hand. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. And so God is He's got his advanced forces going in. You know, that's the best, better than the Navy SEALs going in, okay? Or dropping the Green Berets in behind enemy lines where they can kind of, you know, uh, they can do some things before the main forces arrive. Well, God's going to send in spiritual forces ahead of the, uh, the, the Jewish people. He's going to drive out every demon from that land. And uh, the pagans in there, the ones, that, the demoniacs in there, you know, do you think Legion was pretty uh, was pretty confident that he could defend his cemetery? You know, most most demoniacs are pretty confident that they can they can beat up any non demoniac. If you're energized by by demonic power, if you've got giants populating your land and and you got all these demons on your side, you can you can get pretty confident, can't you? Until the day you wake up and they're all gone, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, oh. What happened to our power? What happened to our 
you know, our demonic strength, what happened to all this other stuff? It's gone. And worse than that, here comes the Lord God of the, of the armies, Yahweh Tzavayoth, and uh, yeah, we don't stand a chance. And so no wonder they're quaking in their boots and confused. And all those things are happening there at the conquest. So anyway, it's interesting. But verses 25 and 26 there we see food, water, sickness, miscarriage, and fertility. The, the uh, aspects there that are interesting. One New Testament passage is in 3 John. And this one, uh, since nobody ever reads 3 John, is not as familiar to us. 3 John. And this one uh, should transform every prayer meeting. 3 John and verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Just as your soul prospers. And so really... When you're praying for um, prospering and being in good health, you know, how many of our prayer meetings are about uh, employment, f- uh, financial provision, and physical health? Okay, what, what's the what's the segment of our prayers that are that are given over to, to those uh, to those concepts? Well, all of that falls as a proportion under soul uh, prosperity. In all respects, you may prosper. It says, just as your soul prospers. So I'd like to hear more soul prosperity prayers in our prayer meetings. That uh, as we uh, learn doctrine, as we learn the Word of God, as we apply the Word of God, as we serve one another, as we bear fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, prosper my soul, and then in proportion, uh, the, the finances and, uh, and health can work themselves out. Because you, we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these other things will be added. They will be added. So spiritual well-being has physical health benefits. That's pretty straightforward. What else? Back to Proverbs 14. So that was verse 30. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. So if, uh, if your spiritual walk is just a frenzy, is just uh, chaos, and uh, just stop and ask yourself, wait a minute, <laughs> is this any good? What am I doing? And uh, th- is this, the, uh, is this the, uh, the doctrine that's contained not only in, in Proverbs, but is this the doctrine that's illustrated in Elijah with the wind, with the fire, with the earthquake. Think of that as the passion or the frenzy. Is your spiritual walk a frenzy? Is it just like a, just a, a chaos of, of everything? Well, that's no good. But it was in the still small voice that he heard the Lord. Not in the wind, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, in the still small voice. And I think that's the principle and we see it here. We want to have the tranquil heart. We want to just be be still. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. All right. Because frenzy. I like frenzy more than passion. But however you want to translate it, I'm not hostile. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not against passion, but I just want passion to be directed appropriately. And uh, as the, the, the antithesis of tranquility there I don't want you to think, you know, romance or, or you know, marital passion or whatever. It's the, it's the antithesis of tranquility. 
So maybe change it out for the word frenzy. A frenzied spiritual walk is no good to anybody. But a tranquil spiritual walk, that will have its benefits. All right. Verse 31, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Now this is a follow-up to earlier verses, and we've previously had the earlier verses related to rich and poor. Do uh, you remember those? We talked about uh, the perspective re- uh, pertaining to poor people in verses 20 and 21. Uh, we've had other verses related to the poor. We want to be gracious, we want to be generous. But this is uh, coming back to this topic again. This time around, though, it frames the issue as either taunting or honoring God. Earlier verses dealt with rich and poor, but this verse frames the issue as either taunting God or honoring God. Earlier verses dealt with rich and poor, But this verse frames the issue as either taunting or honoring God. And so in the outline we had point 13 and we dealt with that in verses 20 and 21. We talked about uh, how rich and poor can both be your neighbors. We uh, we talked about um, uh, the contrast between hate and love and we're expected to love our neighbor, not hate our neighbor. And uh, and so in verses 20 and 21 there was a hate versus love contrast. Remember that? The poor is hated even by his neighbor but those who love the rich are many. He who despises his neighbor sins but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. So those were a couple of verses that were contrasting rich and poor and contrasting love and hate. And so we went through that and that doctrine is fine and it's appropriate but the attitude there of love and hate is directed towards the person, directed towards the, the, the neighbor. This verse now, verse 31, is kind of framing the whole issue as, well, what is our perspective towards God? Do, are we taunting God as we neglect the poor? Or are we honoring God as we reflect His attitude in providing for the poor? And that's how it's phrased here. It's phrased as taunting God. So um, are you going to oppress the poor? (laughs) You realize how blasphemous that is? You realize how um, your attitude towards God, how He's going to take it? You know, what was that parable Jesus taught about the slave and He forgave his slave of the, the little tiny little debt, whatever, you know, five bucks, you know. And he forgave the slave. And then the slave turned around and he started choking his fellow slave. Right. No, I actually have the numbers wrong because the first slave that was forgiven was forgiven of a multi-million dollar thing that he couldn't possibly pay back. It was a huge, huge debt that he couldn't possibly pay back. So he begged for mercy in this, and the master forgave him of that million dollar, multi, you know, $10 billion debt. And then he turns around this is the, why it's so offensive. He turns around to his fellow slave who owes him this minuscule little pittance, right? Five bucks or whatever. And, and starts choking him. You have to pay it back. You have to pay it back. And that tells the story. Because we're all, you know, in God's eyes, <laughs> we, we've all fall short of the glory of God. We all need forgiveness. We all, and yet, and, and so when God forgives us, What should our attitude be towards our fellow slaves? We should be gracious. So when we oppress the poor, 
If we oppress the poor because what? Because they don't have what we have? Because we think we're better than them? Because, because what? Because we can? Because, you know, we could, we could be gracious, but instead we're going to oppress them, we're going to actively kick them while they're down? What are we doing? All that is is just, that's a taunt. That is defiance before the Lord God. That's the, you know how prideful that is? Because we could be them. It's only by His grace that we're not in their shoes. And we could be in their shoes tomorrow. And if we keep taunting God, we probably will be if, uh, if He's going he's to afflict us with that. It is truly taunting the Lord. And we see it not only here, but it comes back, the same expression in chapter 17 and verse 5. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. Who are you taunting? Who are you taunting when you're mocking the poor? When you're mocking his, your maker? You're, yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're mocking God. He who, rejo- who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. You know, do you get a secret little carnal thrill when someone has a bad thing happen to them? Well, why is that? How, what, what, what motivates that? So, this is the issue here. What is taunting? Taunting is an expression of complete disdain. Taunting is an expression of complete disdain. That's what taunting is. That's what mocking is. It is an absolute dismissal. That not only are you better than them, but they are so bad, it's not even worth speaking to, talking to, helping, loving, anything. It's, it's a complete and total disdain. Last week there was an article on Chick-fil-A that, that was just seething. Some of you read it on, on I shared it on Facebook. Um, there was an editorial writer and just seething over Chick-fil-A coming to New York City. Absolutely seething. Hating the idea and, and basically writing on an I told you so basis because he apparently wrote something years ago when the first one arrived. And he wrote back then why that was a problem. And in the intervening years uh, they've added three more locations. There's now four Chick-fil-A's in, in Manhattan. Alright? And this author is just livid. Absolutely livid. He hates Chick-fil-A. He hates the company. He hates the founder. He hates the Christians that, that run the place. He hates the Christians that work there. I mean really what he hates is every Christian he knows. Uh, or mo- you know, the Christians he, do- he doesn't know. Um, and, and that gets reflected in his article. And it was so over the top. He even went so far, he starts mocking the cows in the commercial, you know, because the cows, well, the cows are clearly twisted and evil. The cows are trying to get you to kill the chickens. The cows, the whole, the whole motto is eat more chicken, right? And so you got barnyard animals that are campaigning for other barnyard animals to get killed because they want to live. You know, and that's, of course, it's, 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 that's the whole point of the joke. If the more chickens that get eaten, the, the longer the cows get to live. And so, of course, that's what the cow wants. And it's all comedy, it's all humor, it's all good fun. And it's a marvelous advertising thing. And it's, it's uh, you know, they've won awards for, for their advertising campaign because it's so effective. And the, the cows are beloved and identifiable. But boy, this, this, this uh, editorial was just seething. Seething with disdain. Seething with, with just dripping with, with um, mocking 
Christian Christianity, mocking um, God. Ultimately, that's what you're doing. If you're going to mock His servants, you're mocking Him. And so that's what taunting is. And so we put up with it, we accept it, whatever it is, blessed are you when men insult you and mock you and say all kinds of evil. So, alright, thank you Lord. Um, some good examples of this, by the way, include Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. So if you, if you want to be a mocker, understand who you're imitating. You're understanding the loser in this battle. <laughs> okay. David wasn't mocking. David was just telling the truth. He says, I'm going to go kill that giant. The giant was mocking. So 1 Samuel 17 and verse 10, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Because he's looking around and he says, I don't see any men. I see children. I see, you know, he's just mocking them. Choose a man for yourself. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight me, and kill me, then we'll become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants. And day after day after day, nobody was stepping forward. Is there a man? Is there a man? There's no man there. And so uh, here he is defying the ranks of Israel. And that verb to defy, that's the, verb that, that's the same verb that we have in, in Proverbs today in, the, in he who taunts the poor. Um, and so David, David wants no part of that. He hears what's happening. He can't believe that somebody hasn't killed him already. <laughs> you know, David hears what's going on and uh, he, he's just showing up with some provision for his brothers. And Jesse's got some, uh, uh, in verse 17 we read, Jesse said to David, uh, his son, take now for your brothers an F of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into their welfare of your brothers and bring me back news. And so David's just a, an emissary, probably 10 years old, 12 years old maybe, and uh, carrying this stuff for uh, Jesse. And when he arrives, he hears all this going on. So he leaves the baggage in the care of the baggage keeper in verse 22 and he runs to the battle line. And as he was there, then here comes the giant again the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. He spoke these same words and David heard them. It's been going on for days and days and days and this is the first time David finally heard it. He wasn't there to hear the earlier taunts. And so the first moment he hears it, this is his, he's provoked. His spirit is provoked. He's like, he, he, he can't believe. Wait a minute. This uncircumcised Philistine is taunting the living God? Why haven't you guys stopped that? When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And so this is, uh, and, and even with the, the uh, incentives, you know, offering to marry the, the king's daughter, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to, to defy Israel. Same verb. He's taunting, he's defying, it's willful disdain. He will, it will be that the king will enrich this man who kills him with great riches. You know, name your price. It's a blank check. Fill out the amount. Uh, he will give him his daughter. You know, I mean, that gives you a claim on the throne if you're married to the king's daughter. And will make his father's house free in Israel. Tax-free. Your house is tax-free now. How about that? April 17th comes and you just laugh and tell the IRS, sorry, I'm not participating. 
my house is free. Okay. And so uh, David can't believe it. He says, say that again? <laughs> what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? That's the issue. That's the, that's the issue right there. The, the men have no comment on, on the reproach. They just say, hey, there's a, there's a big reward if you go kill that giant. David says, taking away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The whole point of being uncircumcised has nothing to do with his foreskin. It has to do with the fact that he is not a, a Jew. He's not a part of the covenant nation of Israel. He is a Gentile. God is the God of Israel. Circumcision is a sign of who is the covenant party with the Lord God of Israel. So he's the uncircumcised Philistine. Uh, Yahweh is the God of Israel. He's not the God of the Philistines. And we've got to take away this reproach. And so that's the, uh, that's the principle there. And it's kind of curious too. <laughs> Eliab, his oldest brother, is going to be mad at the little runt. Eliab's anger burned against David and he said, why have you come down? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? You're too young for this. Go back. You little kid, you got no business on the battlefield. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Clearly Eliab is not impressed with Jesse's portfolio. He's not impressed with the flocks. He's not impressed with Ephrathah. Calls it the wilderness. You know, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Ephrathah, you little backwater place of Bethlehem. Are you kidding? What a, what a loser. Because he's a big soldier now. He's serving the king. Hmm. With whom have you left those few sheep of the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. What I think Eliab is confessing is his own insolence, the wickedness of his own heart. And he's ascribing that to David. It's, it's, it's uh, called projection. You've come down in order to see the battle. And David says, I was just asking a question. Anyway, um, it, it's curious here. And I'm out of time. We'll come back to this next week. But David's got experience. Yeah, I'm just a kid. Saul says to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth. Well, he has been a warrior from his youth. He's a combat veteran since he was your age. And look how tall he is and look how huge he is and you're just a kid. You're a youth. David says, well, yeah, I'm a youth, but I, I take care of sheep. I've killed lions. I've killed bears. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went on after him, attacked him, and rescued it from his mouth. When he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. That's what it comes down to. That's taunting. All right, I'm out of time. We'll pick up here next week. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for keeping the migraine away and allowing for, uh, for a class to be taught. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please come and show me my typo.